story. They wanted a king so that they could be like other nations. They wanted a king to go and fight their battles. And Samuel was not amused. In fact, he was very displeased. And he took it to the Lord in prayer. But then, for many years, Samuel had been the holy man of the nation, one who, as a child, had been schooled in the ways of the Lord by Eli, the high priest, at the holy tent, through craftsmen under instruction from Moses. It had travelled with them all through their wilderness wanderings until they settled in the land of Canaan and now rested at Shiloh. Like Eli before him, Samuel was also what our English Bible calls a judge. But that's a bit misleading. While these people certainly helped sort out civil disputes and were recognised for their ability to make good decisions, they often led the Hebrew tribal armies in localised tribal battles. They weren't elected by popular vote, and it wasn't a, an hereditary position, though both Eli and Samuel made the mistake of appointing their sons, none of whom followed in the footsteps of their fathers, but were corrupted by the power and the, of their position and by greed, taking bribes rather than delivering justice. Not only that, but Eli's sons were killed in battle and for a period the Ark of the Covenant was lost to the Philistines. And judges were not limited to men. Deborah was a judge and a prophetess and she is usually described uh, in the English Bible as the wife of Lepidoth. However, the Hebrew can equally be used to begin to realise that that's probably the proper description of this, this very powerful woman. Another good example of one who filled a similar role would be Joshua, who followed Moses as the leader of the ten tribes, which had left Egypt, wandered the desert, and finally entered their promised land. He it was who led their armies in the defeat of Jericho when the walls came tumbling down. When they began to settle in Canaan, there was no central government. Rather, tribal leadership was largely left to the heads of families, with the judges acting as referees and leaders in battle when the need arose. This informal method of government lasted for over a hundred years. And as far as Samuel was concerned, it had proved its worth. But we want a king like other nations, the people said. You're old and your sons are worthless, they said. We want a king because they were not rejecting his leadership, but wanting an earthly king rather than a heavenly ruler. They were rejecting God's leadership just as they had done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, God said. So let them have their way. Only warn them of what it will be like. Tell them what the king will do. Now, Diane and I have been reading a book by Rob Bell of Mars Hill 
fame, who with a colleague has shaped an interesting overview of the early history of Jacob's family from the, t the time, from their time in Egypt to their situation under King Solomon and even into eventual exile. All had gone well when Joseph was Prime Minister of Egypt and invited his family to settle there while the famine raged. But there eventually arose a pharaoh who didn't know of Joseph and forced the Hebrews into slavery. They had developed from an extended family into a numerous people with a strong ethnic identity. And this pharaoh made their life a misery, a living hell. And God hears their cry. Rob Bell tells us the Hebrew word for this sort of cry is sa'ak and means to be suffering, to be in pain, but it also carries the connotation of a question. Where is justice? And when they cry out, God hears. This is central to who God is. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. And in this story, God does something about it. The exodus is how God responds to the cry. Exodus is about a people, a tribe, a nation being rescued from slavery. Slavery is a fundamentally inhumane condition. Being owned and treated as property robs people of the dignity and honor of being human. And at Mount Sinai, God outlines through Moses what it means to be human again, to be an authentic human community, to be God's people. God is inviting these people to show the world what this God is like by the way they live their lives. So he makes a covenant with them which starts, if you obey me, and by the time of Samuel, it doesn't seem as though they were doing a very good job of it. It's as if they were saying, this is too tough. And we want to be a nation of power and prestige and to fight and to win battles with a human king to lead us. And despite the clear warning of what a king will do, they pushed Samuel to appoint a king. And so he does. He appoints Saul, who started well enough, but lost the plot. So Samuel, under God's clear guidance, tries again. And a young shepherd boy, a harp player called David, becomes the chosen one. Fights many battles and eventually succeeds in unifying the nation. And begins the hereditary process of succession. And the people experience peace. Then David's son Solomon comes to power. He starts off well enough following God in the way of his father. He turns out to be brilliant and wise and begins to accumulate wealth. And Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom, begins to gain a global reputation such that it to find out more about this people. And their God. 
Wasn't that what God was on about at Sinai? A nation that would show the world what God was like? And Queen Sheba appreciates what she sees. Because of the Lord's love, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. She gets it. She understands that God has given Solomon all this power and wealth and influence to use it on behalf of those who are poor and weak and suffering from injustice. But what did Solomon do? Exactly what Samuel had told the people a king would do. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem. Another word for forced labor is, of course, slavery. And Solomon is using slaves to build a temple for the God who set slaves free. Not only that, but he used slaves to build three fortress cities and amass thousands of horses and chariots. Solomon isn't maintaining justice, but in Rob Bell's words, is creating an empire of indifference and creating the very circumstances from which his people once needed rescuing. And in the process, building a kingdom of comfort for the elite. With thousands of wives, as Samuel said, he would. And the kings that followed him did little better. The history of Israel is a downward spiral leading inexorably into exile in Babylon. Be careful what you wish for. But God wasn't finished with them, for it was by the rivers of Babylon that his prophets began to speaking of a future to be led by a new son of David, a servant king, a prince of peace, a leader who would be not just for them, but for everybody. What started as a promise of hope for this people grew into a universal hope for all humanity. And that's about where the Old Testament story ends. But there's another story for another day for those with ears to hear. And there's deep wisdom in the saying, those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. It seems that, that the unbridled desire for money and power and privilege engenders an almost irresistible bias toward corruption. The prophets have said clearly what God wants. Walk humbly with your God. Otherwise, you'll be left to reap the, the rewards of your own foolish choices. Just look around, watch the news. 
listen to the siren voices and am airbrushed images of the advertisers and the influencers. And if you're taken in by them, the result will always be that those who have more will have more than enough. And those who have little will lose what little they have. And all for the sake of empire. That's not how it was intended to be. And we are called to walk to the subtle beat of a different drum. To sing a song of freedom and sharing and support for those who need it. We are called to live God's kingdom values and be like Laban in the baker's dough. We know that story. So let us live it.